Jesus said in Matthew 28 verse 19, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Welcome to Go Teach All Nations, bringing you Christ's teachings through Australian and international speakers. And here is today's presenter, Tim Matsis. I just invite you to bow your heads as I ask the Lord's presence to be here with us tonight. Our Father in heaven, again we just pause and we beg for your Holy Spirit to be here in our gathering tonight. Lord, we know that there are things that you want your people to know, especially at this time. They may not be all the things that other people want us to know, or maybe even the things that we think we need to know. And so, Lord, we ask tonight that you open our hearts. May you shut us in and shut out the things that would distract or annoy. And may we hear your voice speak to us. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've titled this evening's message, The Slave, Slave Trader. And uh, probably if I mention the name of John Newton to you, that might ring some bells. Probably what comes to mind when I mention the name of John Newton is that famous hymn, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound. But what many people don't know about John Newton is that he had a very colourful experience before he actually became famous for his religious experience. He was born in 1725 in London. As most of you will know him as a clergyman and a hymn writer. But he was once a slave trader. Some of you may know that already, who was instrumental in the abolition of slavery. What most people don't know about John Newton is that was he was actually a slave himself at one time. His father was a merchant seaman, and like many boys when he grew up, John dreamed of going to sea just like his father. When he was uh, at 11, when he was 11 years of age, he went. But in 1743, at the age of 17 or 18, just when his life was starting to look exciting, looking to fulfill his dreams on the ocean, there, were a turn of, there was a turn of events. You see, his father wanted him to uh, head other places, but John was determined to spend a life at sea. And one day, while going to visit some friends, John Newton was caught now, you think the laws may be tough at the moment, but back when John Newton lived, they needed people to join the Navy. And so what they would do is they would go around the streets and they would look for men who seemed to be at a loose end, and even some that weren't, and they would capture them and they would impress them into his majesty's service. And John was caught one night and he was pressed into the Navy which meant that he was forced to go and serve on His Majesty's boats. So he was already a, a form of slave at the moment, but things went from bad to worse. You see, things didn't go well on the boat. 
and a lot of the men didn't like him very much. And so in 1745, he was abandoned to a slave trader by the name of Amos Clough. A slave trader from, well, he had spent some time in West Africa. And so Clough took Newton back to his, uh, where his wife lived in West Africa. And he gave Newton to be a slave to his uh, native wife from the Sherbro people, Princess Pia. I don't know if I've said that correctly. But she treated him just like one of her other slaves because she kept slaves as well. And so John Newton went from being a, uh, a slave, if you like, for his majesty's service to being a slave trader. And then he was made a slave himself. What would you feel like if you were John Newton? You start out, you know what it's like as a young man with a heart full of hopes and dreams. And before you know it, you're serving the king. And then before you know it, you're a slave to someone else. John Newton himself recorded, and it's on his tombstone. He says he found himself at this time not a God-fearing man, but an infidel. And he describes himself as an infidel and a libertine, a slave, a servant of slaves in West Africa. Quite a tragic progression of events. You might say regression of events for someone that had such hopes. But you know, the Bible records a story about another group of people. Another man and his family that looked forward to a bright future. And you know the story. Through the providence of God, Jacob came down to Egypt with his 12 sons and their families. And they lived in the land of the Egyptians. They had a lot of hope. One of, their members of, one of the members of the family was uh, the prime minister of the country. They lived in the best part of the land. They didn't pay taxes like the other Egyptians or most of the Egyptians paid. And so they had a lot of future in front of them. Exodus chapter 1 and verse 7 tells us that the children of Israel were fruitful. They increased abundantly and multiplied and waxed exceedingly mighty and the land was filled with them. A future full of hope and promise. But do you know something changed? A place where they once had a lot of hope suddenly turned on them. A country which once accommodated their beliefs, which respected their God, even if they didn't follow him. A country which respected their people. Things changed. Exodus 1 verse 8 tells us that a new king arose in Egypt who didn't know Joseph. And this king came with a different set of values. A different set of ideals, if you like. And as the king presented his new set of ideas, the people had different ideas as well. They had grown further away from respecting Joseph and his family and their God. And of course, as people's values change, what happens in a society? Their laws start to change. And uh, the government now began to, instead of respecting the descendants of Jacob, began to question the loyalty of these Hebrews to the Egyptian crown. Why are they here? What good do they do for us? 
the government which once believed that they should respect Jacob and his family, now believed that the only way to make a Hebrew fit into Egyptian society was to force him to do it. Exodus chapter 1 verses 11 to 14 tells us, Therefore they did set over them taskmasters to afflict them with their burdens. They built for Pharaoh treasure cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. And they were grieved because of the children of Israel. The Egyptians made the children of Israel to serve with rigor. They made their lives bitter with hard bondage in mortar and in brick and in all manner of service in the field. All their service wherein they made them to serve was with rigor. Once Egypt was a place where they felt they could prosper. Now Egypt had passed bad laws that enslaved them, corrupted them with their oppressive ideas of how Hebrews ought to live in Egyptian society. I don't know how you feel about the world you grew up in, but in my mind, this world has changed quite a bit. You know, I think back to when I was a child at school, we had teachers and, um, you know, the school, you treated the school a bit like, you, you know, they treated home. It was one and the same thing. If the teacher told you off, the parents told you off and you expected that the teachers had a similar set of values to what the parents had. In fact, I remember being more afraid of my parents finding out I got in trouble at school than if my parents found out or got me in trouble at home, if you know what I mean. When you watched TV, TV had a certain time it turned off. How many of you remember that little clip they played of the Kiwi and the cat going to bed when TV went off for the night? Yeah, there was a time to shut down and go to sleep. And the kind of things you saw on TV were things that respected family values. They wouldn't dare play anything that didn't. Pretty much all the children walked to school or biked to school. They didn't get dropped off in an SUV with big bumper bars on it. I remember we didn't even lock our houses at night. If we went out, we just left it open. In fact, I remember there being an ad on TV to encourage people to lock their cars because nobody locked their car. And so they showed ads of cars being stolen while a guy left his keys in the car to encourage people to start locking their car. The fact they had to advertise shows you something about the sort of society that we, we lived in. I don't know how you feel about it, but I feel that things have changed. And a country which once respected Christian values and Christian laws suddenly has become a place where perhaps it's a little bit harder, a little bit less accommodating. In fact, values that once were seen as the bulwark of society that supported the society are now seen as an enemy of society. Things that get in the way of progress. Things have changed in the society that we live in. And something changed in Egypt. And life for a Hebrew, at least one who wanted to follow God, was not the same anymore. Everything that was truly good was despised. And instead, society started to promote everything that seemed corrupt and evil and antagonistic to the God of heaven. Maybe you find some similarities today. 
You know, when uh, historians, uh, archaeologists have looked back uh, into Egyptian society, when they study the, the mummies that they've gotten out of the tombs, um, they find actually that the diet of the Egyptians was pretty similar to many of the things that we eat today. They found many of the diseases that we have today caused by lifestyle. They found them back in Egypt. You wouldn't think that people that back then maybe died of diabetes or heart attacks. But they found some of these things in the, in the, um, in the bodies, in the corpses of Egyptians who died. Of course, family values changed back there too. Some of you may have heard of the uh, Turin um, papyrus uh, scrolls, or the hieroglyphics, I should say, that contained things that were very antagonistic to monogamy and family values. You wouldn't think that they had that back then. It was a society filled with greed and oppression. You know, there's a big difference when a rich person died and a poor person died. Have you ever wondered why they had pyramids? I was surprised when I was uh, reading about the Taj Mahal. I know it comes from India, but I was thinking, wow, what a wonderful palace. It was a surprise to me one day to learn that it was actually a tomb, you know, a place dedicated to someone who died. And the Egyptian pyramids were the same. If you were a rich person, a ruler, this is what your gravestone looked like. I wonder if some of us struggle to find a house to live in. How would you manage to afford to build a pyramid for when you died? And of course, things went from bad to worse. Pharaoh now adds to the bad laws in the country the idea that you can kill children. The Bible tells us in Exodus chapter 1 and verse 16, Pharaoh said to the midwives, When you do the office of a midwife to the Hebrew women... And see them upon the stools. If it be a son, then ye shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, she can live. Selective, but the result is the same. The idea that you can kill children. Horrible. But these were the values of the society that the Hebrews lived in. A society that no longer respected the sanctity of life. Maybe you can see some similarities. When the medical staff wouldn't cooperate at the Hebrew hospital, if there was such a thing, Pharaoh said to them in verse 16, he charged the people saying, every son that is born, you shall cast him into the river and every daughter you shall save alive. In other words, he stirred up the people to hate the Hebrews. I wouldn't have liked to live as an Israelite back in those days. This was a society that had enslaved God's people. A society that disrespected their God. How do you serve God in Egyptian society? If you were a Hebrew and you wanted to go to church on the Sabbath, you want the day off. I'm sorry, you are a slave. You want to go and... Uh, Go on a uh, church camp. You'd like the week off. I'm sorry, you're a slave. Slaves don't get the week off. You don't choose how to live your life. You're a slave. You don't choose how to worship. You're a slave. 
You almost can't choose to avoid the corruptions of the society that you're living in. You are a slave. And you must go along with what the government says. You are not your own person. You're just a resource. There to do the bidding of someone else. Sometimes we think we don't have much freedom here. But I can tell you that for a slave, there's no freedom. You go back and read some of the stories of what happened to slaves. Their lives were cheap. If you got sold, you leave your family behind. Sometimes slaves were sold, you know, the family was split up. One here, one there, one somewhere else. They didn't care about you. You're just a resource. Don't think for yourself. Do what you're told. Don't bother trying to serve God. You're a slave. No liberty, no hope, no choices. Just obedience. Well, John Newton was about three years living as a slave for his African slave master. As I said, she treated him just like she would treat any other slave. He was no different. His life was cheap and he nearly died. But his father was concerned about him. And his father sent someone to go looking for him. And finally, after three years as a slave, through the influence of his father and somebody he sent to rescue him in 1745, he was rescued, uh, 1748, he was rescued. And even though he was rescued from slavery, on the way back home, he began to realize that he wasn't just a slave to his African slave master. He was also a slave to something far, far worse. You see, he had lived his life as a slave trader. He could swear better than anyone else. He could abuse human beings as much as anyone else could. All the natural passions of his heart, he lived out in his life. Every natural inclination he had, whether it was for good, mostly for ill, he carried out these inclinations on others. Mostly the bodies and souls of the people he traded in. And even though his father had set him free from slavery, he now realized there was something inside of him, something that was far worse than an African slave master. The Bible calls it the slavery of sin. And sin was what was controlling his life. You know, Paul writes in Romans chapter 6 about how bad sin is. But it's something that speaks to every person here tonight. Every heart that's born into this world. Romans chapter 6. He says, Do you not know that to whom you present yourself slaves to obey... You are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or obedience to righteousness. You know, often I talk to young people, and I know I was like this myself, when people say, well, do you want to follow God or not? Do you want to follow God or the devil? And they say, I don't want to do either. I just want to do my own thing. 
It's a, it's a lie, isn't it? Because the Bible says there's only two choices. We either serve God or we are slaves to sin. Jesus himself said in John 8 verse 34, Most assuredly I say to you, whoever commits sin is the slave of sin. In other words, if you surrender yourself to do what you know is wrong, you are a slave. A slave to something that you can never run away from. No matter how good or powerful or rich your parents are, they can never pay to get you out of slavery. You've chosen the service of sin. What is sin? 1 John chapter 3 and verse 4 tells us, Whoever commits sin transgresses the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. Some people might be wondering, wondering, saying, Tim, are you saying that everybody who doesn't obey God's law is in bondage to sin or is a servant of sin? I'm not saying that that's just what the Bible says. The Bible teaches that if we are trapped by sin, then we're slaves to it too. It takes away our choices. It restricts our liberty. And if you think I'm getting down on you, the Bible says that everyone that's born into this world is born in slavery to sin. The whole world, anyone who hasn't found freedom through Jesus Christ, is a slave to sin. Romans chapter 3 and verse 23 says that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You know, perhaps the world seemed to be better than it is now. But the Bible says this world has been a place that's been on the decline for about 6,000 years. That Satan has enslaved the human race and trapped us in obedience to sin. Just like John Newton, and I don't know if you have ever felt that you are trapped, that you're enslaved to a habit, a sin that has found its way into your life. But like John Newton, I'm sure every heart cries out for deliverance, cries out for God to rescue them from the sin that controls us. When the Apostle Paul saw that he was a slave to sin, he wrote this. You can almost hear him crying out, can't you? He said, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? From this body of death. Who will save me from sin? You can almost picture John Newton trapped in some room where he there's filth on the floor and he's chained up to something. A boy who grew up in a probably a comfortable place in London with a wealthy, successful father, now lying in a in a filthy room in some foreign country, being treated badly by somebody. You can almost hear him crying out, where's my father? Who will save me from this slavery? And if you've ever had a sin in your life, and I'm sure we all have, something that's trapped you, something that you can't seem to escape, every heart cries out and says, how can I ever be free from this addiction 
from this habit that seems to control my life. Paul could see that those who were free, those who are free from the slavery of sin, are those that keep God's law. But in his own heart, he realized that he was incapable of setting himself free. That it was impossible for him to undo the chains that held him in the filth. He needed someone else to do it. You know, the Bible says also in the book of Romans, chapter 8 and verse 7, that the carnal mind, that's the mind that we're born with. The heart that each one of us inherit as descendants of Adam and Eve, that that heart is enmity against God. In other words, it's not natural for us to do the right thing. It's natural for our hearts to want to do the wrong thing. I remember having a conversation with a young man and he said to me, I don't know why I want to do these things. It's not like I chose to do it. And I had to say to him, you know what? It comes naturally to us. We're all born with these tendencies to want to do the wrong thing because we're born into a family that's been enslaved. You know, if a slave, par if slave parents have children, the slave master owns the children. And all of us have been born into a family that has become enslaved to Satan by the choice that Adam and Eve made in the Garden of Eden. And lying here as we are in this world of sin, our prison cell, if you like, not one of us has the power to set ourselves free. The Bible teaches that those that are truly free are those who can obey God's law. Those that have the power to disobey the slave master and instead be in harmony with the law of God. Listen to what James says in James chapter 2 and verse 12. He says, So speak ye, and so do, as those that shall be judged by the law of the law of liberty. In other words, he describes God's law, the Ten Commandments, as not a law that enslaves us or places us in bondage, but a law that sets us free. It's the law of liberty. You know, sometimes I hear people saying, when you talk about the Ten Commandments, they say, oh, that's the law of bondage. Only people that are enslaved, that are still living under the old covenant, only those people keep God's Ten Commandments. But, the, but James says that the law of God is a law of liberty. And those that are set free by Jesus are free to keep it. Listen to what David says, because he agrees with James. He says in Psalms 119 verse 45, he says, I walk at liberty, for I seek thy precepts. In other words, true freedom is keeping God's law, not living a life that's enslaved to sin or breaking God's law. What everyone needs is a deliverer. And just like John Newton's father sent someone to save John Newton, God sent a deliverer to save the Hebrews. Exodus chapter 5 and verse 1 and 2. It says, And afterward Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, 
Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said, who's the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I know not the Lord, neither will I let Israel go. Friends, one thing we have to realize if we want to escape the slavery of sin is just saying a few words won't do it. You know, I've heard people say that if you want to escape the slavery of sin, all you have to do is say these magic words in a prayer and you're saved. It's easy to say the words. I told my son the other day I want to lose five kilos. It's easy to say the words, isn't it? But there's something else that's required. And so Moses and Aaron go in. And they say the words. One thing I can promise you, Satan will not let you go easily. If he has his hooks into your life through some sin or some habit, he will hold on to you for dear life. Notice what the Bible says about sin. Proverbs chapter 5 and verse 22 says, His own iniquities shall take the wicked himself. And he shall be, this is an old word, he shall be holden with the cords of his sin. Sins. You know, sometimes, and if you ever talk to a smoker, they'll tell you that the first cigarette they had, they probably hated. A drinker will probably tell you the same thing. The first time they tasted it, it tasted awful. But that first drink... That first cigarette, Satan put a cord around them. Yeah. Maybe they could get away from one cord. But the next drink or the next cigarette, there was another cord went round. And then maybe they formed a relationship with someone that did those things. And so Satan put some more cords around. Until the person that says, I can quit any time, suddenly finds, just like, Solomon has written here that they're holding in the cords of their sins. They've built a life around disobeying God's law. Their whole life is orientated around their habit. Their money is spent on it. Their time is spent on it. Their energy is depleted by it. They're held by the strong chains that Satan has wrapped them in. You ever tried quitting a habit? I've heard someone say, quitting smoking's easy. I've done it hundreds of times. It's not easy to break away from a sinful habit. So even though Moses is sent with Aaron to declare that God wants his people set free, Pharaoh will not let them go easily. A person that's a slave is a slave for life. You don't just hand in your notice. Listen to what the Bible says about the devil. Isaiah 14 verse 17 says, He, talking about Satan, he made the world a wilderness and destroyed the cities thereof. He opened not the house of his prisoners. There's no parole. No home visits, no weekend release. When Satan has you in the cords of sin, he holds you tight. 
You may say you want to go free. You want to give it up. But I know I'm speaking to every heart here tonight. That many times we say, I want to be free. It's not that easy. Satan comes back again and again and again. And he says, you are my slave. I own you. How dare you choose to do something different? And so you might struggle to be free. But your success will be about as good as any slave who struggles to be free from a slave master. He'll come and find you and he'll make it worse for you. And so Pharaoh here acts just like the devil. Listen to what he says in Exodus chapter 5, beginning in verse 5. Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. Pharaoh commanded the same day the taskmasters of the people and their officers, saying, You shall no more give the people straw to make brick as before. Let them go and gather it for themselves. And the tally of the bricks which they did make heretofore, you shall lay upon them. You shall not diminish aught thereof, for they be idle. Therefore they cry, saying, let us go and, saying, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Let there be more work laid upon the men, that they may labor therein, and let them not regard vain words. You see, it's hard doing what God says. You know, John Newton tried to escape once from his impressment in the Navy. When they caught him, they tied him up and they gave him 96 lashes. 96. Friends, if you've been a good worker for Satan and you try to escape because you've been idle enough to read your Bible or hear something that tells you you can give up a bad habit, I can assure you that Satan will come back with a vengeance. He will lash you. He will try and make your life harder for having tried to escape. Some people say, oh, I tried to give this up, but it just didn't work. Of course it didn't work. Do you think the devil wants to let you go? You know, sometimes God allows us to experience the failure of trying to escape sin ourselves. He wants us to call on him, to plead with him, to beg him for deliverance so that we know how much we need him and how futile it is for us to try and do good of our own selves, for us to try and escape our bad habits or try and be good people. You know, the world's full of people trying to be good people. They all want to be respectable citizens, to have their neighbours look up to them and think they're nice people. If you go to their house, they'll put out snacks on the table. They'll offer to feed your cat while you're away. They're all good people. But it's much harder to escape the slavery of sin. And Satan's happy for you to be a good person by the world's standard as long as you stay his slave. If you try to escape, he will make your life so difficult that you will want to give up. And do you know that's exactly what happened? These Hebrews came to Moses and Aaron and they said, why did you come here to help us out? Life's worse now than when you first arrived. I thought you were here to set us free. 
Friends, we need to cry out to God when we're struggling with sin. It's a battle in the heart. It's not a magic wand when we pray and say, I want to stop. It's enlisting God's help for the battle against sin. It's a battle that we all have to fight and we all have to win. So the Israelites cried out to God and you know what? God sent deliverance. He sent it in the form of 10 plagues, lashes, if you like, on the Egyptians. You know what they were. Water turning to blood, frogs, lice, flies all over the land, disease on all the animals, boils, hail, locusts, darkness. Plagues like this world in this time has never seen, but which it will see again in a very short time. And as this is going on, Pharaoh appears to give a little. And maybe the Israelites felt that surely Pharaoh will let them go now. But then it seesaws back the other way. And Pharaoh changes his mind. So God sends another plague and another one. And each time Pharaoh changes his mind. Friends, isn't that what it's like what it's like when you try to fight a battle? When you try to give up some sin? And you pray and you say, right, I'm never doing that again. And Satan retreats for a little bit and he says, I'll just wait. And then he comes back again and he grabs you again and says, "Ah, I'm not letting you go. You're mine. And so then you pray again and you say, God, please set me free from this. And again, Satan's forced to let go a little bit. And then Satan says, ah, I'll get him again. And he grabs you again. I don't know if any of you have had this experience, but in my experience, sometimes we have to fight a seesaw battle where we give and receive many blows with the devil. Don't you think that sin and the devil is an easy beat? He's no mug. He's no novice. He's been enslaving people for 6,000 years. He managed to deceive the angels of heaven. Do you think you're going to have an easy time getting away from him? Friends, we need God to send plagues on the devil. We need God's power to help us to escape the clutches of sin. Finally, God sends the king hit. Plague number 10. The death of every firstborn Egyptian man and beast. On this night, the Hebrews are told to celebrate a very serious religious service. You see, it's not enough just to turn your back on sin and to say, I want to give it up. As I said, we all need a deliverer. And the Israelites were told, yeah, you want to leave Egypt. That's great. You want to give up the service of, of sin and slavery. That's great. But you need a deliverer. And that deliverer is in the form of Jesus Christ. And so they're told to celebrate the Passover. They're told to sacrifice a lamb and to eat it. This lamb is to die in their place, in the place of every firstborn. They're to put the blood on the doorposts of the house so that when the angel of death flies over, that angel will know that these are the people that not only want to turn their back on Egypt, they want to turn their back on the service of Pharaoh. These are the people who put their faith in this lamb sacrificed 
on their behalf. Exodus 12 and verse 13 says, And the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. And so it came to pass, Exodus chapter 12 and verse 29 says, It came to pass that at midnight the Lord smote all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh that sat on his throne, unto the firstborn of the captive that was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of cattle. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where there was not one dead. And he called for Moses and Aaron by night, and he said, Rise up and get you forth from among my people, both you and the children of Israel, and go and serve the Lord. As you have said, free, free at last. It's a miracle, isn't it? I'd like to think that the story was over there. But I hope you're getting to see what the devil is like. The very time you think you've beat it. He's coming. He's just waiting an opportunity where you feel like you're safe. Where you feel like you can get away, you know, you can get along without God's help, without a deliverer. These Israelites hadn't gone far. They got to the shores of the Red Sea. The sea is on one side. And behind them, the mountains, the hills. And then they see a trail of dust in the distance. You ever felt this feeling when you feel temptation coming? You can see it's on its way. You know you're in for a hard time. And Pharaoh and his army are coming in hot pursuit. They either trust in God to deliver them, which seems impossible from here. Or they go back to slavery. Life and death. What can God do for them in this situation? Plagues, I suppose they could be natural occurrences. Effects of global warming. Sea levels rising and overpopulation or whatever else might be given the blame. But mountain ranges and oceans, what can God do? It's times like this, friends, we need to plead with God for deliverance. Sometimes it seems impossible to resist the devil, impossible to be set free, you know, the Bible says there's no temptation taken us. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13. No temptation taken us, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not suffer you to be tempted above that which you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. And so the Hebrews cried out. And in the midst of a terrible crisis, when they didn't know which way to turn, God's voice is heard. 
Exodus chapter 14, verse 15 and 16, the Lord said to Moses, Wherefore criest thou unto me? Speak unto the children of Israel that they go forward. I'm sure you'd be thinking, forward to where? Lift up thy rod, stretch out thine hand over the sea, divide it, and the children of Israel shall go forward on dry ground through the midst of the sea. Friends, sometimes we don't know how we can obey God. Sometimes it seems impossible for us to do the right thing and survive. It's at times like this we need to cry out to God and then go ahead and do the right thing anyway. Trusting that God will make the way plain, even though we can't see it right now. And so Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. It says, The Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided. And the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea upon the dry ground. And the waters were a wall unto them on their right hand and on their left. Can you imagine what that would have been like? The Bible tells us that the Egyptians tried to follow. But they were drowned as God sent the waters back over the top again. And the Israelites were free, finally, on the other side. Exodus 15 tells us that instead of singing the slave songs they used to sing in Egypt, now they sing songs of deliverance and they dance for joy that they had finally been set free from the slave master. You know, if you hadn't heard that story before, and I'm sure most of you have, you wouldn't believe it. In fact, I can tell you that there are many people in the church today Many religious people who don't believe that story. Say, how can that be? I know of clergymen who don't believe that story. And they will make all kinds of excuses to try and tell you that that story never happened. Despite the fact that it's as plain as day in the Bible. In 1748... When John Newton was rescued from slavery, he was on board a ship called the Greyhound, heading for England, when he awoke and he found himself in the middle of a terrible storm. This man had been at sea many times. This wasn't an ordinary kind of storm. This was the kind of storm where you die. They were just off the coast of Ireland, and the boat was beginning to sink. Like those Hebrew slaves, he thought it was impossible for him to pass through the sea and to keep his life. John was an unbelieving slave trader. A slave trading sinner. But do you know he records that in the midst of that storm, he cried out to God for deliverance. You probably wouldn't rate your chances much, would you? When you look back over your life and you see the way you've lived, you think of the people you've abused, the lives you've ruined, the families you've broken up, the things you've said. I think I told you he was a great swearer. 
you probably wouldn't rate your chances at asking God for help. But just like those Hebrew slaves, at that point in his life, he realized that God was the only one who could save him from that storm. And so he cried out to God, in spite of the fact that he was formerly an unbelieving infidel, as they say. He knew that God was his only hope of being saved. God brought that ship through the sea and back home. John Newton survived, and it left him a changed man. Not only had he been rescued from slavery, but now he had found that there was a deliverer who could save him from the slavery of sin. Now he wanted to dedicate his life to saving others from the slavery, not just the physical slavery, because we know that he acted a part in abolishing that too. But now he wanted to live his life saving people from the slavery of sin. Do you ever wonder what could have inspired a person to write that hymn? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was so blind, now I can see. What about you? Do you need a deliverer? You're enslaved to a habit? Or maybe you've broken free from a habit, but the slave master keeps coming back. You need a deliverer. A deliverer just like Moses was. You know, it's interesting with Moses. You know, he was a Hebrew. He was born into a family of slaves. But he was never a slave. Do you know that? He was, a, he was royalty. When the princess drew him out of the water, he was a part of the royal family. He was a slave who never served the slave master. And do you know the Bible tells us in Hebrews 4 verse 15 that we have a high priest, Jesus, which... We don't have a high priest which can't be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. In other words, he knows what it's like. He was born into the family of slaves. But he never served the slave master because the Bible tells us he was in all points tempted like as we are. But without sin, he never obeyed the slave master. But he knows what it's like to be tempted. And because of that, he knows how to deliver those who are tempted. Friends, something has changed in our world. It's not the world we once thought it was. And God is calling for us now to, to be set free from those sins which so easily ensnare us. He wants us to take advantage of the deliverer, the one who knows what it's like to be tempted. He wants us to turn our backs on Egypt and put our faith in the one who can save us. I don't know if you've tried saving yourself. I certainly have. It didn't work for me. But God wants us not only to be, to be saved, but he wants us to live saved, to live free. Desire of Ages, I found this comment 
page 330. Listen to what it says. It says, There are many whose hearts are aching under a load of care because they seek to reach the world standard. They've chosen its service, accepted its perplexities, adopted its customs. Thus their character is marred and their life made a weariness. In order to gratify ambition and worldly desires, they wound the conscience and bring upon themselves an additional burden of remorse. The continual worry is wearing out the life forces. Our Lord desires them to lay aside this yoke of bondage. He invites them to accept his yoke. He says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He bids them to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And his promise is that all things needful to them for this life shall be added. Worry is blind and cannot discern the future. But Jesus sees the end from the beginning. In every difficulty, he is a way prepared to bring relief. Our heavenly father has a thousand ways to provide for us of which we know nothing. Those who accept the one principle, how many principles? The one principle of making the service and honor of God supreme will find perplexities vanish and a plain path before their feet. He wants to set us free from the slavery of sin. He wants us to yield our hearts to him, to turn our backs on the habits and the things that have formerly controlled us. And he wants us to put our faith in him. Maybe you're saying to yourself, I'm not sure if I could break free from this. I know I've tried before. It didn't work. God tells us all he needs is our decision. Our decision to put God first. The one principle of making the service and honor of God and of God supreme. And he promises that he will find a way and make a plain path before our feet. Is that your prayer tonight? Is it your prayer to be free? Your prayer to put your faith in the only one who can set you free. This message was made available by the Masterson Seventh-day Adventist Church. For more resources like this, visit mastertonsda.nz. Compiled by Remnant Publications, the book Get Ready for a Miracle recounts true stories that prove that when we step out in faith, God displays His power in undeniable ways. Here is our reader, Harold Harker. This story is entitled, The Right Fit. Matthew 6, 8 says, For your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask Him. I was rushing to the airport to catch a plane. When I turned in my rental car, I popped my GPS, which I use wherever I go, out of the suction cup that stuck it to the window. 
the rental car attendant came to the window and gave me my receipt. Running late for my flight, I rushed off. About the time I walked into the airport, I realised I had left the suction cup stuck to the window of my rental car. I would never catch my plane if I went back to get them. I knew I just had to say goodbye. Oh well, I told myself, but I still felt sad because I used my GPS a lot. It was an unusual model, so it wouldn't be easy to find a new holder for it. The next day, during worship at the church with our pastors, I mentioned that I'd left the suction cup for my GPS in my rental car. Of course, they'd never send it to me, I said. Our associate pastor spoke up. That is the strangest thing. Yesterday, I went to the Goodwill store and bought a suitcase for $2. The only thing in the suitcase was a suction cup for a GPS. What are the chances that would fit my model, I thought? The suction cup has to snap onto the GPS, so just any old holder won't work. Despite my doubts, when the associate pastor brought the holder to me the next day, it fit. What are the odds that my friend would buy a used suitcase and find a GPS holder inside? What are the odds that I'd even mention to him that I lost my suction cup? What are the odds that the one he had would happen to fit? It was one of those once-in-a-million occurrences that God uses to show his love for me. A reflection on this comes from Desire of Ages, page 330. Our Heavenly Father has a thousand ways to provide for us of which we know nothing. Those who accept the one principle of making the service and honour of God supreme will find perplexities vanish and a plain path before their feet. This story, called The Right Fit, comes from Doug Batchelor. He's the speaker and director of Amazing Facts, a media ministry based in Roseville, California. His sermons are broadcast on TV and radio across the United States and internationally. Information can be found on the website amazingfacts.org. This program has been brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio.